On a lighter note, the meet, the elders meet met uh, the other day and decided because it's AGM Sunday, they need to get somebody really, really uh, special to preach. So um, they sent an invitation to who they believed was the best preacher around, and that person said no. So then they got together and said, okay, well, let's try again. Let's just go for somebody who we know is uh, very good looking. And that person said no. And then they decided, okay, let's find someone to really expound the word of God to us. It's an important day. That person said no. And so then they asked me. I'd already said no three times. So here I am. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> Okay, so today I want to tell you about the gospel of Isaiah. If you've never heard about the gospel of Isaiah, I want to share that with you today. Isaiah 53 is probably the richest chapter in the Old Testament. And I know that you think Matthew is the first gospel and Mark the second and Luke the third and John the fourth. But I want to tell you that Matthew is actually the second gospel and it was written at least 700 years after the first gospel was written, which I want to share to you today as actually Isaiah 53. The definition of a gospel is the story of Jesus and the first divinely inspired revelation from heaven that tells the story of Jesus in its fullness is found in Isaiah 53. It's the most complete and the most profound revelation of the work of salvation in the entire Bible. I even want to say, bravely say, even more so than what we find in any single passage in the New Testament. So let's read now the gospel according to Isaiah. I'm going to read a little bit before Isaiah 52, which for me is kind of like a summary of what's coming, and then we're going to focus on Isaiah chapter 53. You can follow along on the board or in your Bibles. Let's read Isaiah 52, verse uh, 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised up, sound familiar? And lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. Next time you see a little cutesy picture of Jesus hanging on the cross with a little bit of blood pouring on his head and a nice neatly wrapped loincloth and perhaps a mark in the side, it's not what Jesus looked like. If you want to know what Jesus looked like on the cross by the time they had finished with him, the Bible says people were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond any human likeness. So all that you could see hanging on the cross was a bit of mutilated flesh and bone. Verse 15 says, So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told they will see, and what they have not heard 
they will understand. Okay, so we're not focusing today on Isaiah 52, but for me, that's a, a real good introduction of what's coming up. Let's pick it up now on the gospel of Isaiah. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and to prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he has poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Let us pray. Lord, as we look this morning at the gospel of Isaiah, I pray that you would give us wisdom and insight and understanding. Lord, help our minds not to be clouded out by anything, but just to hear the words of God this morning. Speak to us, I pray, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. So let's talk a little bit about the gospel of Isaiah. The stunning predictions that are in this chapter are so complex and so precise that only God could have known about them seven centuries before a single one of them came to be. Interestingly, the New Testament writers basically refer to almost every single verse in Isaiah 53. 
somewhere and in some way, every single, almost every verse in Isaiah is quoted in the New Testament. That's quite some, something. The Jewish people will never read this chapter. They're not allowed to. The rabbis will not permit it to be read in the synagogues. The bottom line is if we didn't believe or if we didn't have rather the New Testament epistles, just by reading the gospel of Isaiah, Isaiah 53, there is a sufficient explanation in this little chapter for sinners to be saved. In the book of Isaiah, there are two distinct divisions. Listen carefully. 39 chapters involve judgment. 27 chapters involve salvation. Isn't that a little bit interesting? How many books in the Bible? 66, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. Those 27 chapters in Isaiah are divided also basically into three divisions. Nine speak about the salvation of sinners, nine the salvation of Israel, and nine kind of the salvation of the universe. But the middle of the nine is on saving sinners, of saving sinners. The middle chapter in that nine is chapter 53. And the middle verse of chapter three is verse six. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isn't that amazing? Just blows my mind how accurately God just has put everything together. Chapter 53 has been called the torture chamber of the rabbis because the chapter answers the most critical question that Old Testament believers and rabbis had and have. How can a sinner be right with God? Old Testament believers had, and they still have this very real quandary or conundrum. On the one hand, they read about a God of compassion and love, but they also read about a God who will not leave the guilty unpunished. So how could God possibly satisfy this quandary? And the answer is found completely in Isaiah 53. Exodus chapter 34, this is the quandary. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. What a wonderful God. But then it goes on to say, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Can you see the quandary these Old Testament saints had? The modern day Old Testament believers have, those who only believe in the Old Testament. There's a huge issue here. God is so wonderful and loving and kind and compassionate, but he's going to punish sinners. What can we do about it? Read Isaiah 53. The answer's there. 
Isaiah 53 must be perhaps the single saddest chapter in all of Scripture. It's horrific and has, I don't think, any parallel in its crushing sorrow. It clearly refers to the Messiah, to the Lord Jesus. But listen to this. It's not specifically directed at Jesus. We know this because the verbs are in the past tense. I mean, how can it be a future prophecy if the verbs are in the past tense? For example, verse 3, he was despised. He was despised and rejected by men. Why would that be about Jesus? That's more about a group of people who are looking back and saying this. You getting it? 700 years before the Messiah comes, it's talking about a group of people sometime in the future who would talk about the Messiah, who is Jesus, to say, but this is what we did. We didn't esteem him. We didn't this. We didn't that. We didn't the next thing. And then, of course, the pronouns are all plural. There's some group of people in the future who's going to look back at the cross and say what's in chapter 53. So who is this group of people? Well, we know. Zechariah 12.10 says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. So Isaiah 53 is written specifically to and perhaps about Jews. The Jews may have used the Romans to do the deed, but it was their decision. And, in the, and the time is coming in the future when they will look back on the day they pierced him. And the day is coming when they will look back and they will mourn for him as an only son on that day that happens. Last week I said the problem about who kills Jesus is not difficult to work out because Jesus took his own life. John 10 and other places he said, I lay down my life, no one takes it from me. But this is in the context, the passage speaks of a time of these people who rejected him who would not accept that he was their Messiah. Can you imagine the horror when that day comes and it's going to come? That day when they finally realize that the Jesus whom they rejected and the generations of Jews who rejected him was actually their once for all time Messiah. Can you imagine their horror? But what about us? What about those among us today and those watching me today who have not fully come to understand that Jesus is the Messiah? He was the one who was prophesied to come. Have you accepted him? Let's do a verse by verse now today. Again, I'm not gonna give you three lessons or whatever. I just wanna go through verse by verse and just explain a little as we go. Who has believed our message, the writer asks. So who has believed the report? You can just hear this group of people now saying, and we know it's the Jewish people, saying we heard and we didn't believe it. We didn't believe what he said. We didn't believe what the apostles said. We didn't believe what the early church said. We didn't believe. 
To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord there refers to the expression of power that Jesus demonstrated upon the earth. I mean, for all intents and purposes, Jesus basically banished disease or illness from the land of Israel while he was there doing his thing. He took control over the kingdom of darkness. He raised people from the dead. He took charge over the elements of nature. I mean, miracle after miracle of miracle. And as we read this morning, John said, there's so many things there that haven't even been recorded. They saw all of this expression of power and they still rejected him. For us today, we still hear about all these things and we still reject him. Last week, we celebrated, yippee! when he came out of the tomb. But do we really do that? Do we really know that? Do we really live like that? See, this is true for everyone who rejected and who continues to reject him today. And why did they reject him? Well, verse two answers that. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. See, they were looking for a different kind of Messiah. They weren't happy with the one who came. They wanted someone who would take the yoke of the Roman oppressors off from their backs. They were looking for somebody powerful, not some meandering preacher with a motley crew of followers. This was just the carpenter's son with some smelly fishermen and others following him. Possibly up to seven of them were fishermen. I mean, this was a, this was a disorganized, smelly bunch following this random self-proclaimed prophet this wasn't the messiah this this person you know who grew up before them he had no beauty he had no majesty why would we have been attracted to him there was nothing in his appearance that spoke of royalty or kingliness you know we see pictures of jesus he's got a halo around his head you know and he's just like so wonderful no he was unremarkable he was just the Joe next door if you saw him. Verse 3 says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. I mean, if you walk past him in the street, you might have turned the other way and hidden your face. That's what the verse means. We didn't want to see him. Certainly wasn't in the class of the religious people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. By the way, you know Jesus' Greek name is Yeshua. It's the Greek variant of uh, the Hebrew Joshua. So Joshua and Jesus is the same name in Hebrew or in, in Greek. But the word Yeshua, the rabbis changed to Yeshua which means let his name be blotted out. It's an acronym. It's, a, it's an acronym. The word Yeshua doesn't mean that, but it's an acronym. It's made up of letters, meaning let his name be blotted out. 
And this was the reason the Jews believed they were forbidden to mention the name of false gods and instead commanded to change and defame them. And that's exactly what they did with Jesus. They changed his name because they considered him a false god. We esteemed him not. That basically means he was non-existent. He was a non-person. They were happy to believe he never even existed. And if he did exist, he was a non-entity. He was a man without an ID document, you know, <laughs> without a citizenship. Can you imagine the day when the Jews as a people look back on the one they pierced and they mourn for him, this rejected Messiah? That day that the Apostle Paul speaks about in Romans 11, where he says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. I'm not looking for a third temple to be built. I don't think that's in the scripture. We are the third temple. But I'm looking forward to that day when all Israel recognizes their Messiah. Verse four affirms how they will see him in their hour of salvation. Suddenly they realize who he is. Surely, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. What this is saying is that we thought he was an imposter. We thought he was a liar. We thought he was from hell. We thought he got his power from Satan. We thought that God was killing him as a blasphemer and that God had actually used us and the Romans to do God's will and to do God's work to kill this imposter. But he didn't. He died for our sins. He died for our sorrows. Verse five, he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace was upon him by his wounds. We are healed. Friends, we are healed because of what he has done. By the way, Isaiah is talking about healing in a spiritual sense. I know people all over the church use and abuse this verse to get your sore toe healed or something fixed up. I don't know what it is. But this healing here is not healing of your physical body. This healing that Isaiah speaks about is very specifically spiritual. Right from the beginning of Isaiah, he's calling out the spiritual condition of Israel. Isaiah 1.6, he says, from the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores. It's that that Jesus has come primarily to heal. I'm not saying God doesn't heal today. God does heal. I'm not saying you mustn't pray for healing. You must pray for healing. But I'm just saying don't abuse the scripture for healing because it's got to do with my soul. This healing was Christ's sacrificial atonement. He took our sins. He took our place. He took the wrath of God for us and satisfied the demands of a holy God for the payment of the sins of the world. See, someone had to pay, and that someone was Jesus. 
Only in him do we find spiritual healing from our sin condition, not just for Israel, but for all of us here this morning and for those watching and listening. Verse six, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's completely characteristic of a sheep to stray. I don't know if you've noticed. When I'm driving, I don't slow down for a goat. I put my hand on my hooter. I tell my wife to keep quiet because by this stage she's... Tell her to keep quiet, put my hand on the hooter and a goat gets out of the way. A goat is worldly wise. Next time, if you, if you, don't, want, you don't believe me, just prove it. Just put your hand on the hooter and the goat will go out of the way. A sheep, mm-mm. A sheep, he just skips you off. He doesn't give a hoot. Sheep will just look at you and just carry on walking. He just wanders wherever he wants to wander. And that's the essence of our being human. The problem's not only with our behavior. We have a problem with our nature. We, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one turning to his own way. Christ had to die not only for the sins that we commit, but he had to die for the inherent sinfulness of our own humanity. And the good news is that God treated Jesus as if Jesus committed every sin every, ever committed by every person who has ever believed throughout human history. He committed none of them, but God treated him as if he had committed all of them. One of my favorite verses, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's move towards his trial now in verse seven. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Wow. He allowed himself to be abused, oppressed and afflicted, but he didn't even say anything. Matthew 26, 62 says, the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not gonna answer? What is this testimony men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. Verse seven continued, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep before a shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. I just love that passage where John the Baptist says, behold, take a look. Have a look over there, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse eight, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. That means his trial was a mockery. His trial was illegal. One day if we have time, I'll share with you at least 10 reasons according to Jewish law, the trial of our Lord Jesus Christ was illegal. They didn't do it according to what they were supposed to do. Jesus was wrongly arrested, wrongly tried, wrongly executed. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people, he was stricken. It was clear to the people of that time. And it'll be clear to the Jewish people as they get hold of Isaiah 53 on that day. And it can be clear to us, Jesus was cut off. Jesus was killed by violent means. This was no ordinary trial and this was illegal, it was violent. 
Verse nine, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. See, he was supposed to be taken off the cross and thrown into Gehenna. Gehenna was the city dumped just outside Jerusalem. That's where they threw the criminals. So in those days, if you went to the city dump, you would find some dead people lying on top of the, the rubbish dump, just being burnt up and all the rest of it. They just got thrown in with the rest of the rubbish. But the New Testament tells us that Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Joseph of Arimathea had an unused tomb which he gave up with G for Jesus. Verse 10, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. It was the Lord's will or the Lord was pleased, your translation might say, to crush him. This wasn't that the Lord was pleased in the agony of the atonement, what Jesus did. But the Lord was pleased in what he accomplished through his death. His perfect will was done. Jesus would be the perfect guilt offering as a satisfaction of our sin debt. Remember the quandary? God is a God of love, but God has to punish sin and sinners. I love the way the resurrection is implied here where it says he will not see his offspring and his prosperity uh, is knowing his bride for all eternity. Wow. After the suffering of his soul, verse 11, he will see the light of life again, resurrection, and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will, servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. You know what? I'm convinced no one will be left out that believes. Lots of people are going to hell. Lots of people are have their names not in the book, Lamb's Book of Life when that gets opened. But everyone who's supposed to be there is gonna be there. Jesus said, this is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. We're nearly done. Verse 12, therefore I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong because he had poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressions. I think this is the father just simply saying, I affirm the substitutionary atonement of my son on the cross. He's done what needed to be done. He has the sinless lamb of God stood in that place where no one else could stand and he has satisfied the wrath of God for those who will believe. It's an amazing thought that I'm not gonna face his wrath. It's an amazing thought. I'm not gonna face his wrath. Why? He's forgiven me because of what Jesus did on my behalf. Let's conclude very quickly. The gospel according to Isaiah, we've learned the Messiah does not meet, did not meet their expectations, the suffering servant, made no sense to them. 
See, for the Jewish people, it was their righteous deeds that got them satisfaction with God. They didn't want the suffering servant. They didn't want this Messiah with his smelly bunch of followers. He was sinless, we've learned again, yet laden with our sins. Our substitutionary sacrifice, we should have died. He was substituted for us. He took my place. Violently, illegally, and unjustly, he was put to death to pay for my sin. Wow. The good news is he did not stay dead, but he lives so that we who believe will also live. Amen. Isn't that an amazing little book in the Bible? Have you ever thought about the gospel of Isaiah before? that every single thing we need to know is in the Old Testament, that by just reading that chapter, we would have known the path of salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah.